Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I was thinking about Netflix, you know, with all the pandemic binge watching and everything. Yeah, everybody is there. David Rubenstein had a chance to talk with co-CEO Reed Hastings on the David Rubenstein Show peer-to-peer conversations. You know, Netflix went public in 2002, right? And the market cap is up more than 80,000%. And I checked the math and that's definitely the case. And the stock is up more than 40,000% since then. Oh boy. Yeah. And uh, David had a chance to ask Hastings if he ever expected this kind of success Why don't we listen in? The company now, which went public in 2002, the market cap is up about 86,000%. Stock is up about 41,000% since then. Did you ever think that it would become that big, that successful? Well, no, because then I would have never sold a share. So um, you you never know on on that. And, you know, honestly, there's been a lot of luck along the way, too. Um, Blockbuster could have wiped us out many times. Um, when Viacom spun off Blockbuster in 2004, they saddled them with a billion dollars of debt as their goodbye kiss. And, you know, that the covenants on that debt severely limited Blockbuster when they attacked us. So that was one. Another one is Blockbuster had us on the ropes and then Carl Icahn got elected um, to the board of directors by the shareholders of Blockbuster. Uh, and he fired the CEO over some, you know, silly bonus issue, and then they completely changed strategies. And so it, all these things have been incredibly, you know, lucky strokes. And so you need both skill and luck, which I'm sure you've experienced too. I've had a lot of luck for sure. So uh, let me ask you though, for those who may not uh, be familiar with a new book you're coming out with called No Rules Rules, uh, in that book, uh, you described that you actually at one point wanted to go to Blockbuster and sell them the company for, I think, uh, a modest amount today, $50 million. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, in the early days, we were like, Blockbuster is going to wreck us as soon as we get big. Um, and we were almost right about that. And so we went to see them and, and you know, they were very polite, but they were not interested. And uh, had they bought the company, where do you think uh, Blockbuster would be today? And where do you think Netflix would be today? No, it's always hard to tell. Uh, but I think we could have made Blockbuster a modern brand. You have a culture you describe in your book, which is very unique. And let me just go through a couple of the things that you say that I found stunning as somebody who's helped to run a company myself that's publicly traded. For example, you have a system where um, people can take whatever vacation they want to take. There's no limit. People can take any time off they want, no limit. Uh, Where did you get that idea from? Well, in the industrial economy, like factories, we measured people by how many hours they did on the job, nine to five, eight to six, whatever that is. And we really want people to focus on ideas, on generating important work. 
And so, you know, we don't measure them during the day. We don't clock our people in. And if we're not going to tell whether someone is working five to nine or nine to five, which is a two to one difference in hours, why are we tracking whether they do 50 weeks or 48 weeks a year, um, you know, of work that's in the noise. And so unlimited vacation, you know, is sort of like saying dress how you want, you know, and then people still don't come to work naked. There's some cultural assumptions about appropriate clothing for work, and we don't need to specify that. And in the same way with vacation, people understand getting work done and they get to live more flexibly. Okay. Well, you also say in your book, you don't have to please at your company, your boss. In other words, you can go ahead and do what you think is best and your boss doesn't agree. That's okay. Is that easy to run a company that way? You know, again, we're really focused on inspiration over supervision. So the traditional paradigm is that good management is close management, sets objectives, manages tightly, and all of that's appropriate in safety critical environments, airlines, producing vaccines, et cetera. But in a creative business, you don't care so much about what goes wrong. You care about enough of the right things get done. Um, and so we really focus on inspiring, inspiring our people and having it be very open and collaborative. And from that, you get amazing uh, technical innovation and you get amazing content innovation. You point out in the book that if people do a reasonably good job, they still might lose their job if they haven't done a spectacular job. And therefore, they get a very good severance, but not a continued job. Can you explain that theory? Yeah, and again, in the traditional industrial paradigm, you know, you have to do something wrong to get let go. You can think of a job as sort of a property right, you know, until you lose it by abusing your position. But if you think about professional sports, you know, if that team is going to win a championship, it has to have a mix of the right players that work well together that are the absolute best in the world. And so we try to model ourselves like a professional sports team. So highly paid, but you got to earn your position every year. And it's about performance. And, you know, that's not right for everybody. Some people care mostly about job security. Other people care mostly about excellent colleagues and, you know, playing great team ball to achieving something important for the consumers. And, you know, we're attracting, you know, that group of people who care about team excellence. So I've no doubt your book will be a bestseller because it's a very interesting book. But I couldn't understand exactly whether you were saying that your culture is one that if other companies adopted, they would do better. Or it's just that you're explaining what is so unique about your company and why it's successful. So which is it or is it both? I think a certain type of company, a company in a creative industry where there's a lot of change, will do better by optimizing for flexibility than efficiency. And other companies like an airline or a factory wants to optimize either for safety or for manufacturing yield. So again, highly consistent results. And that's not for this Netflix culture, but for uh, again, a, a company that wants to be inventive and create new things, I think this offers uh, a lot of fresh ideas for people to rethink the traditional industrial paradigm. So let's go back a little bit to your background. So you grew up in the Boston area, is that right? Uh, Boston and DC, yeah. And you went to uh, college at Bowdoin, which is a great school. And after you graduated, what did you do? 
Uh, I went in the USP score and I was a high school math teacher uh, in a very rural part of Southern Africa. And after that, you decided that you would go to business school at Stanford. What led you to decide to go to business school and at Stanford? Uh, so I actually went into computer science um, and I, I tried to take a business class, but they rejected me. Um, so uh, in any case, um, being at, at Stanford in the mid 80s was an incredible experience because uh, you learn so much entrepreneurial uh, work from all your colleagues. Everyone's bubbling with ideas. Um, and that's still happening today, 40 years later. So when you graduated from Stanford, you decided to get into the computer industry and you were a uh, programmer for a while. Is that right? Yeah, I was a programmer at a couple of different companies. Um, and then I was fortunate and had an idea of something that I really wanted to do. Um, that was in 1990. Uh, so I took a year off and consulted on the side part time and then wrote um, a program that ultimately turned into a company, which was a, a reasonable success. Uh, Morgan Stanley took us public in 1995. It doubled every year. Uh, and that ultimately is the company that was so much process that it got too rigid. So it was a great learning lesson. All right. So when you ultimately left that company after taking it public and ultimately merging with somebody else, you had the idea of starting what is now Netflix. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the timing uh, was shortly thereafter um, that uh, a colleague of mine uh, from uh, Pure, uh, Mark Randolph, and I were brainstorming on different ideas. And then, you know, like many people at that point, I had had this terrific late fee. And so it was, uh, you know, thinking there has to be a better way. And then it's when this friend told me about DVD that I realized, oh, you could mail those cheaply and that you could potentially build a business there that was not in Amazon's direct interest because of the return loop that you constantly return these DVDs, which was unlike Amazon's core. So it was e-commerce, but you know, a smaller market than what Amazon was going after. The story is that you uh, took out some uh, DVDs, I guess, from Blockbuster. You found out that you had kept them too long, you didn't like paying the late fee, and that prompted you to think of something like this. Is that fair or is that just apocryphal? No, that's accurate. Um, but it, you know, sort of says every time something goes wrong, the idea didn't pop into my head right then. It was later, you know, when I was debating ideas uh, that, you know, that the sting of that stuck uh, because it was a $40 late fee. So, you know, and it was all my fault um, of uh, just not breaking it back. So originally you're, you're mailing DVDs back and forth, but the idea of streaming, uh, who came up with the idea that that would be better? And was streaming that prevalent then or that common or people knew what it was? Yeah, people knew what it was. And, you know, uh, I had had the good fortune. Um, the year I came back from the Peace Corps, so that's mid 80s now, um, I got a job serving coffee uh, at a company. And it turned out that that company, a computer lab, uh, was the very first dot-com. So there were no dot-coms at all. And then there was the first one, and that was this company, Symbolics.com. And so this was a company out of MIT that was like the hotbed of the internet, but nobody knew the internet. Um, and so there I was serving coffee, soaking up the culture and how they thought. And so when I eventually you know, went on to Stanford, uh, you know, I was in the internet thing um, and then had been 
part of that and tracking that for a decade uh, when it was a decade when Netscape went public and everyone else tuned into it. So, I mean, some of that, again, is just incredible serendipity of, you know, what's the company that I got a job serving coffee in the computer lab? Well, originally you would take programming that say Disney or NBC or ABC or somebody had and you would or movies and you would put it up and people would pay for it and you would pay the the uh, people who produced it, I, I assume some royalty. When did the light bulb go off and you said, no, we need to have original programming? Well, Ted was intimately familiar with the history of cable television. And right from the beginning, he educated us on HBO's path, which their first 20 years in the 80s and 90s, they just had recycled programming. And then with shows like Sopranos and The Wire, uh, they moved into original programming and what a difference it made for them. So we were very aware of that history, and then it was just a matter of biding time till we got big enough. So today, the original programming that you have, is that more popular than the non-original that you're in effect renting from somebody else? Yeah, that's right. The original programming, um, driving uh, The Old Guard, our, our newest movie, uh, Kissing Booth 2, an amazing movie, um, our series like India Matchmaking or Umbrella Academy uh, are all driving both the viewing and the membership growth. So we're fundamentally an original content business that supplements with licensed content around the world. Why is it that on Netflix, you, your, your, your content is very popular, but you don't do uh, things like news or sports? How come you haven't done those yet? Well, those are great areas, but they're well covered by other companies. And we have so much more we want to do on series uh, and films. And we're you know, breaking into animated films and series now. We've done really well with unscripted reality programming, uh, like India Matchmaking that I mentioned, and Love is Blind, and Tiger King. So our, our hands are just full. And again, there's other companies doing other things. And, you know, we just want to focus on entertainment. And when House of Cards was on Netflix, um, did you suggest themes for it or plot lines? Or did you ever get involved in that? Or you stay away from what they're actually going to do on the, on the show? Our book really talks about don't please the boss, do what's right for Netflix. And because of that, uh, Ted Sarandos, when he was negotiating um, with House of Cards, with uh, Kevin Spacey and David Fincher, he was willing to do very bold things because he was convinced it was right. Um, and so he paid a fortune and guaranteed two seasons, which at that point no one had done. And he only told me about it later. And so his willingness to make big independent decisions, it's what led to us getting House of Cards. And of course, he could have been wrong and it could have been a disaster, but it was a great series, put us on the map. And that's, again, somewhat testament to Ted's personal skill, but also to the culture that allowed him to make those decisions. And so when you started winning um, Academy Awards and Emmy Awards and other things like that, was that a surprise to you that you were getting that kind of uh, recognition? No, our, our, we've always wanted to work with great talent. And right from the beginning, um, we knew that, like with House of Cards, that the talent that was involved in that, Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey, you know, were potential to win Emmy nominations uh, for that. So if you, if you back great talent, they, they will win awards. And it's, you know, very life-changing for them. For consumers, um, you know, it doesn't matter as much. They're not as visible. But in the talent ecosystem, it's, it's very significant.
Recently, you made an announcement that stunned a number of people, which was that you were uh, bringing in your chief content officer, Ted Sarandos, who has been with you for 20 plus years, almost from the beginning, and making him the co-CEO. Usually people who are CEOs and founders don't all of a sudden give up a lot of power. So why did you decide to do that? And were you surprised that the reaction was a bit of a surprise? You know, uh, Ted and I have worked together for 20 years and we've been virtual co-CEOs for the last several years. Um, so we've been paid the same, you know, we don't do really do anything material without checking in with each other. So this was just acknowledging and formalizing, you know, what has been. And so externally, you know, it's a change and that helps on Ted's stature and ability to do big deals. But internally, it's really no change at all from how we've been operating. At the time of the announcement, you said you were good for another decade. So uh, in October, if I got it right, you'll turn the big 6-0. And that'll mean by 70, you might be ready to slow down. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you tell me, how. Uh, what, what's your experience in that of uh, 60 to 70? Right. I would say uh, workaholics don't really pay much attention to age. And so as long as your health is good, I don't think you'll change that much. But when you get 70, you might look around and say, maybe I'll do something else. But you've got a long uh, 10 years ahead of you, I'd suspect. And I'm sure you'll be in great health to do it. Well, I'm super excited about it. There's uh, so much that we can do in terms of bringing the world together, uh, sharing stories from around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just as the Internet grows to, you know, every human being, I think there's just an amazing opportunity ahead. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You and your wife recently made a contribution to United Negro College Fund and to Morehouse College and to Spelman College. Why did you decide to do that? Is that not your largest uh, philanthropic contribution, any one uh, uh, gift? No, it's not the largest, but it, um, it's the loudest or sort of the most public. We tend to mostly be very quiet about these things, but we wanted to show solidarity um, for black education and black education is so critical to economic mobility, uh, political mobility and, you know, the sense of belonging and the challenge, you know, for us as a culture is really the legacy of slavery and it continues to be a tremendous scar across the soul of America. Uh, and it's, you know, awful and it's so bad that it's hard to look at and talk about and it's so hard to look away. And we really haven't come to terms with the legacy of slavery in our country. So this, you know, uh, modest donation, again, relative to the needs is really about, um, you know, black economic gains and uh, education. So the story that I read was that you were originally considering a gift of maybe one-tenth that size, and then the last minute you increased it. Uh, when you called the head of the United Negro College Fund, was he surprised, or what made you change your mind? Well, I've known the head of UNCF for a decade, um, and he's taught me a lot uh, about race in America, um, and we've been a donor for a number of years. 
Um, but it was really the current time um, that got us to make such a substantial and frankly public donation um, to, again, bring attention to the role of the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities um, like Morehouse and Spelman um, and to support their work because they do uh, develop um, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, black leaders throughout this country. And they're a really positive part of our education system. And because white capital tends to flow to white organizations, um, you know, there's relative capital isolation in the same way that we have social isolation. And so, um, you know, we wanted to be part of building those bridges. Now, the industry that I've been in, the financial service industry, is not replete with as much success as it would like in terms of minority hiring. And the technology industry is probably somewhat that way as well. Is there something that you can do at Netflix to enhance your minority hiring in, among the executives and your other employees? Well, we, we published the data and we've made uh, every quarter and we've made great progress and we've doubled our number of African-American employees over the last three years. And you know that's throughout the business, but in particular in the media side, uh, our tech side is still underrepresented, you know, uh, as is in the field. Um, so we have a long way to go, but we're, you know, trying to make those efforts, not only, again, for African-Americans, but for many underrepresented groups, um, both in America and, frankly, around the world. So people who are watching this will say, okay, I want to be like Reed Hastings. I want to build a great company. I want to be successful, have a great family, philanthropically uh, active. Uh, what would you say is the key to leadership that enabled you to be what you are today? It's about achievement of the company as opposed to personal achievement. So you want to be super proud of the organization and personally humble. So um, I assume you hear from your high school classmates, your college classmates, your Stanford classmates telling you they always knew you were going to be successful and they weren't surprised. And by the way, they have a script for you or something like that. Um, do you hear from a lot of people like that? Yeah, I stay in touch with a, a lot of friends that way. Um, and, it, you know, I was definitely a late bloomer. Um, I don't think I was one of those people that was marked at an early age and, you know, where you read about how at age 16 they were like unbelievable. Um, you know, I was very average, run of the mill kid. Um, and, um, you know, I've been super fortunate with a series of events in terms of my first company doing well, having that idea, which then laddered into being able to do Netflix. Um, so I, I feel incredibly fortunate, which is part of why uh, my wife, Patty, and I, you know, are so dedicated on philanthropy. It sort of, you know, like seems to us miraculous that, you know, we have this money and, and uh, of course we live a very comfortable life, but it's really the excitement of using that money to then uh, help others. So let's suppose 10 years from now when you say you might uh, hang up your spurs at Netflix, you might, you're not committed to it. Uh, what might you do? Would you run for office? Do you want to be president of the United States? Do you want to be a senator, governor, philanthropy, teaching? What do you think you might want to do when you turn the ripe old age of 70? I want to have my own interview show. <laughs> Um, well, I'm sure you could get that anytime you want one. I, I know a good uh, uh, company you could probably uh, get on, Netflix. That was Reed Hastings, co-CEO of Netflix on the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer -peer Conversations. And that is it for Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. 
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.